Broadcasting from everywhere and nowhere, the Misfit Crew at Southfleet HQ is proud to bring you the Dive Living Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Die Living Podcast, brought to you by Softlead. Today, we are talking with Brooke, our talented RDN, Registered Dietitian Nutritionist, who is responsible for all of the amazing programming that comes through on the Softlead Nutrition team. Brooke was recently in Chicago for a conference, and... When she came back, she was pretty excited about all the awesome stuff she learned there, and we thought, wow, there's enough information here. We should be sharing this with everyone, and hopefully you guys will be as excited about it as she is. So, Brooke, you tell us a little bit about what what the conference was, why you went there, and uh, you know, and specifically, we'll talk about like what, what you thought was so cool. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, it's called the Food and Nutrition Conference and Expo. It's a mouthful, but... It's primarily registered dietitians from all over the world, actually. I think there were there were the United States mostly and then like 70 countries. Um, and we all come together for four days of learning about research that people are doing, um, new products, and kind of just also to get together and talk to other people about what they do and what works for them. And uh, the conference starts off usually with a big speaker and then every day there's like series of lectures that you can pick. And I think what's really cool about dietetics that maybe people don't really realize is you can be doing a ton of different things with nutrition. So a lot of the sessions are about medical nutrition therapy, which is basically what we call treating disease states or conditions with nutrition, which I think is super cool. Kind of like functional medicine, I guess. Um, and prescription so, diets almost. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. So that's really, I think, important that we're headed in that direction towards like getting more recognition even as a profession that that's a really legitimate route and something to keep in mind instead of just a pharmaceutical something to help fix your problem. So um, that's really cool. So most of the dietitians, I think, work in clinical settings or outpatient or... Um, community settings like WIC or the health department. So I'm definitely an outlier going in because most people do not work in like the sports field without athletes or with technology. So that was yeah, kind of cool. So why do you think that is though? I mean, why do you think, because like high performance athletes care so much about what they're putting in their bodies and the fuel that they're putting in their bodies is so important. Um, like why is it that that's so overlooked as far as that last step you know, of going to a registered dietitian versus just someone that like knows a lot about food or, you know, knows a lot about, you know, protein or macros, et cetera. Um, you know, what does the registered dietitian give that, you know, the kind of the food guy doesn't get? I love this. So there's a really big difference between a registered dietitian or registered dietitian nutritionist is our new, we're kind of trying to take back the word nutritionist, which is why they added that in on the end of our credentials. So a registered dietitian nutritionist and then someone who calls themselves a nutritionist are totally different things. And 
we have to go through five plus years of education. We have to take a registration exam. We have to do 1200 hours at least of supervised practice before we are even like given the right to practice versus someone who is a self-proclaimed nutritionist. They do not have to do anything. They can read men's health and be like, I'm going to be a nutritionist. (laughs) And that's all they have to do. So I think that it's important because as a dietitian, we're trained to like look at their research, make these like, we can't make assumptions. We have to like look in, there's a process, I guess, before we take it into practice versus someone who promotes fad diets or whatever. Usually it's for like their own gain. They're promoting some product or they're promoting something. Sure. Or just well intentioned in terms of yeah. someone who you know, maybe has found a really healthy lifestyle and is excited about sharing that with other people, um, but is doing so without being super well-informed. You know, saying that almost makes me think of like, you know, the people that are like, you know, my bulldog is the cutest thing ever, so we're going to (laughs) breed it. And it's like, "Mm, I don't know if that's like really what you need to be doing. Um, It's cool that you like your dog, but (laughs) do you need to be making more of them for other people? Like, maybe not. Uh, but in any event, yeah. So I think, you know, but so much of what you're saying is the, and I feel like people easily can look past, be like, well, you know, yeah, you need a dietitian if you're trying to like, you know, cure some ailment or treat some ailment. Um, you know, but why on the performance side is it so important? You know, like what, what are you able to give athletes that, someone who's like, hey, I'm an athlete and I know how to eat clean and I can help you help other athletes eat clean. Like, what can you give people that, you know, what does your schooling help with that someone who just is good at it can't? Well, I have to go into the nitty gritty details and my education was six years. I, I just to, before I even got to the supervised practice and what I did in my jobs for experience um, of really getting into the biochemistry of it. We're getting into like, uh, I looked at so many OCHEM molecules and things I never wanted to do, but we need to understand the science and the foundation, I think, before we can make these recommendations and like assumptions, I guess, about nutrition. And it is very individualized. So if an athlete has figured out what works for them, that's great because it is so much how your body responds to things. But just because it worked for that athlete or this, you know, self-proclaimed nutritionist or whoever doesn't mean it's going to work for you because there's so much more in this like bigger picture of like the science behind it, I guess. No, that makes a lot of sense. So, sorry, going back to the conference though, you know, every year it sounds like this is kind of the, the unveiling of, of the new, the cool new information for the dietitian crowd. And you know, what were the things that you learned? I have to say my favorite thing that I learned was this talk um, with this awesome research team that's working on protein research. I feel like protein is very, a very misunderstood macronutrient. Um, and people just think, oh, the more I have, Especially the better. Especially in the athlete crowd, right? Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. But that's I mean, actually you not the case. you got to eat 800 grams of protein a day if you're going to put that muscle on, right? Yeah, no. I heard it's 9,000. <laughs> <laughs> that's if you want to get really jacked. Yeah. <laughs> John Dill style. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing about protein is, and there's different levels to this research, but there absolutely is no research to support beyond 2.5 grams per kilogram of protein a day. 
which comes out a gram to per pound. Basically, so, a gram yeah. per pound, right? So that would be like two point two, which is right around where I recommend athletes who are like healthy adults, because there are some states where you shouldn't have a high protein diet. You say two point two. That's pounds per kilogram, right? Um, two point two grams of protein per kilogram. So it ends up being a pound, right. uh, a gram per pound. Like Jump. that's where that comes from. Um, but there's so when people go really really crazy overboard with the protein. Um, there's really no research to support going higher than the 2.5 grams per kilogram. What about how much protein you can absorb in one meal? Because I feel like that's something that we constantly see popping up. You know, like yeah. the whole, hey, you can don't eat more than 25 grams of protein at one sitting because your body will never be able to absorb it. Yeah, that is true. Your body can only absorb so much at a time, which is why we have developed this model of eating protein, high quality protein throughout the day so that you're really making sure you're getting the most out of that protein instead of just like backloading a lot of it. So what happens if you put like 100 grams of protein into a protein shake? You just poop it out? You're going to, yeah, you, and you're going to feel miserable because protein actually dehydrates your body. So when you're eating a high protein diet, drinking a lot of water is really important. You're going to get muscle cramps and stuff, but you're just going to immediately feel miserable because protein dehydrates your body. Um, and, and you don't need to. So the way I was taught is it's a range of kind of like 35 to 50. And this depends on the person. So if it's like a bigger guy, it's going to be on the upper end versus me. I'm probably closer around like 35 or 40 grams. I can absorb at a time. So that's why we kind of talk about spreading out those meals and we have the three meals and two snacks in our model so i thought it was cool a lot of this research is like we're, we're doing it right so it's not necessarily limited to 25 grams you just don't no. want to go bonkers with it yeah you just don't want to go crazy and some people eat around like someone really with a lot of muscle mass will even eat up at 60 and i guess if like you're okay and you're comfortable with that and you don't feel miserable like i've heard i've heard you say you just said high quality protein. What is what does that mean? High quality protein. What is a what is a high quality protein? What's a low quality protein? Like what should we be avoiding if we're trying to to eat properly? So high quality protein is going to be lean protein sources, and you can easily make things lean. So I do recommend like trimming down fat, like visible fat on things. But when it comes to high quality protein as well, for me, I think it's a really important thing um, to be mindful of where the protein's coming from. I choose to eat organic meat. I'm not trying to like um, promote, I guess, the organic movement fully, but I want to know that in my meat, I have a high quality protein that wasn't treated with antibiotics and hasn't been full of like other things. So to me, that's part of a high quality protein. But um, high quality protein also means it has all of the essential amino acids. So that's meat. That's also some grains like amaranth is a complete protein. Um, but most plant sources are not a complete protein. So when we say high quality protein, we want all the essential amino acids. So typically what you mean is, is from, from animals as opposed to plants. Yeah. But what's interesting, and this is one of the things that was brought up at the conference is your body actually responds better and absorbs um, absorbs protein more quickly when it comes from whey protein. So I thought that was interesting. Hmm. Why is that? It, so <laughs> the way it works is intact protein. So things like sushi that hasn't been cooked, you're not going to absorb and process as many of the amino acids because they're fully, the protein is fully intact. It hasn't been broken down. So Don't just, fuck up sushi for me. Please. <laughs> I think what she's saying is we need to eat more sushi. Exactly. Right? <laughs> Triple the intake <laughs> to get the same. Yeah. That's what we've been doing wrong. <laughs> exactly. This whole time. <laughs> And then when you move down the line, you have um, what we call hydrolyzed protein, which just means that it's been started to be broken down into those amino acids. So that would be cooked food. Um, and then 
things like whey protein are actually the quickest absorbed because they're in that really like raw, ready to be absorbed. The amino acids are right in there, ready for you to absorb. So that's kind of something that's interesting, but they actually did a whole entire study. I kid you not about um, chewing your protein properly. If you really chew your protein properly, you actually absorb it and it increases your muscle protein synthesis. That's a, wow, that was a mouthful. Um, versus if you don't chew your food well La- enough. Laird Hamilton is like a huge proponent of that and like food chewing, like he's the Pied Piper of it constantly talks about like, yeah, you're not getting as much nutrition as you should. And for portion control of a lot of people, like people just don't spend enough time chewing their food. So they're in a 30 minute meal or a 20 minute meal, they eat double what they should because they're not like spending enough time processing it in their mouths, which I don't know the science behind that, but but that's where digestion starts. Like there's enzymes in your mouth that like start the breakdown of food. And so, and if you're not chewing it and helping that process and getting those enzymes, yeah, there's definitely, there's actually research to prove that's true. I started th- trying to be mindful of it and it's difficult because like everything, especially like coming from a military background, like you, you're literally training yourself to like throw an MRE down your skull <laughs> <laughs> as fast as possible. And, uh, <clears throat> Insert food here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, how else are you going to put down a, a triple thing of fries at Wendy's, you know, in five minutes? <laughs> well, um, and I mean, just, you know, like eating in the car and you oh, know, yeah, so yeah. much of, uh, no, trust me, man. I mean, you know, back on like the trading desk, like we never left to eat lunch, right? And so lunch was a, essentially a distraction. And when you feel like cheating, <clears throat> right? You know, I think, I feel like a lot of play, people at work, um, one hour is like a kind of a regular lunch break. And if you work and you're not within walking distance of someplace and you didn't bring your lunch, it's like a 15 minute drive somewhere and a 15 minute drive back and you go to Panera, it's like, Oh, I'll take the healthy option. Then you like throw it in your mouth and walk out the door as quickly as you can. Like it's not very good for you, even if you're trying to do the right thing. Yeah. Well, and oftentimes I think the healthy options don't end up being the healthy options either. Right. Like, you know, what sounds like it's healthy has some kind of, you know, sauce on it. That's mm-hmm. like, Hey, this, this healthy sounding thing actually has like the most calories of anything on the menu. Steam vegetables uh, at restaurants <clears throat> are bad about that. Cause they'll just like slathered in butter and yeah, stuff. Yeah. yeah. It might have, it might have two tablespoons of butter on it. It's like, yeah. And, and an enormous amount of sodium. Like people always wonder like, why do the vegetables at restaurants taste so much better than the ones I could get home? It's like, because they add fat and salt. Like that's <laughs> it's not a secret. Right. Well, <clears throat> but sorry, I, we keep like pulling you off topic here. So no, I like it. Well, that. I did have one question. So like I've heard a lot of bad things over the years about soy protein. Are those founded or are they unfounded? Well, and a lot of that was maybe you've heard differently. What I've heard is that a lot of that re- is like with uh, respect to testosterone production and estrogen mm-hmm. and estrogen production. Yeah, absolutely. From my understanding, you would have to eat a lot, a lot of soy for that to be a problem. Yeah. So but is I it a complete protein? Like you said, is, it, is soy protein a high-quality protein? Like are you getting all your amino acids? Yeah, yeah. Soy, like that's why they use it as a replacement. I wouldn't consider it a high-quality protein, but that's why like vegetarians and I guess vegans What you, what you got against soy, man? I, don't, I just don't like soy. I don't like the, I don't really go to soy, I guess that much. I do like good, like edamame maybe, but here's my thing about soy is like the whole issue, the whole reason to eat soy for most people as Brooke mentioned, you know, is the vegetarian thing. Like I'm not going to eat irresponsibly if you want to call it that. And and I would, 
uh, irresponsibly raised animal protein, right? So instead of that, I'm going to eat, you know, instead of getting random mystery beef um, or shrimp, which I feel like seafood's often overlooked is kind of like, oh, it's seafood. It's good. Like, man, if you see some of the places that like seafood gets raised, that stuff's pretty nasty too. But in any event, you know, I'm not going to get the mystery beef in my pad thai. I'm going to get the tofu instead because that's really healthy. And the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, this is something we touched, we touched on when Ross was here. If you go to these like huge soybean, you know, crop fields, these like swaths of essentially like monoculture, you know, fields in the United States or anywhere else, what you have are these places that <clears throat> require massive amounts of fertilizer to keep those fields productive like year in and year out. And so, you know, you get you get the feeling is, uh, you know, potentially of like, oh, I'm, I'm doing the right thing and I'm not eating like, you know, this like factory farmed meat in my meal. I'm eating soy instead. Well, yeah, but, you know, without the factory farm meat, you wouldn't be able to fertilize those soy fields and like have that much soy protein to begin with. So in in essence, like it might be one more step removed, but you're still promoting that system. You're part of the mm-hmm. system. You're part of the system 100%. You and know? once and you like, hear the screams of the soybeans being harvested, you'll never forget <laughs> it. <laughs> no, but it's like if you really give a shit, if you really care on that level, and I, and I definitely believe that you should, then – you know, really, the whole thing is about finding ethically raised meat, right? Yes. And in and I and is you know, Doc Sidner talked about the whole idea of the system. Like nothing can in, can exist and be be good or sustainable like on its own is one thing. Yeah. Um, the whole idea of the monoculture, right? So having animals that are putting carbon like back into the soil and like refertilizing the soil. Um, you know, and us using that protein, which is not only like way healthier than the factory farm stuff, um, but also is, is creating better crops as well. Like if you, if you are eating produce that comes out of fields, um, you know, so that whole system I think is so much better. Um, however, not everyone has access to it, but I also think in, you know, the access to it is probably, people perceive it to be more difficult than it actually is. Yeah, mm-hmm. well, and that's, Doc talked about that a lot when we when we saw him last. Essentially, like, I don't know what's going on in the system, it's like, but that scares feedlot people. That scares commercial growers of, of produce and of meat because they need to be able to analyze and categorize and um, do analytics on the inputs that they're putting into their system that affects their profitability. So if there are these things in the ground, bacteria or bugs or any of that stuff that's not under their control, they feel like, oh, we're leaving this X factor open. But their product ends up being inferior, whereas Doc goes the exact opposite direction. He's like, I don't, I don't know what's going on, but I do know that it's good that dung beetles are breaking down these cow patties and we're moving the people around and we're not having to use all these artificial inputs to get the product out at the end of the day. So, yeah. but, but I also don't like if something bad happens, like I don't have the levers to pull mm-hmm. to keep the production, the production line going, you know, whereas if I had a big multinational corporation, that might be a lever I've required to have that sort of stuff. Sure. But I think that comes back to part of what Brooke was saying before is that, you know, maybe we don't need to consume like protein on the level that oh, we're yeah, consuming yeah. it on. Right. For sure. So for sure, I think the whole idea of that we should be buying less protein 
of like higher quality is something that we should be pushing towards. Um, and I, I think, absolutely agree. You know, it's something that we are that we are doing with the mm-hmm. nutrition program as well. Yeah, but I think that I've. If you look at the meal and you're like, okay, four ounces of beef, like that's it. It's like, well, yeah, because you're eating a really high protein grain like quinoa, freca, whatever it is that's contributing or lentils or legumes or other sources that are beneficial. So I think that, um, I think a lot of people were probably surprised at like just the the, um, size of the meat portions, but that's really all you need. And that keeps it way more affordable as well, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Protein usually ends up being by far the most expensive part of the shopping list. Yeah, it's funny. I think we, we talked about this in the office the other day, but you know, vegetarian lifestyle we kind of touched on before. Um, it's a really difficult for a lot of vegetarians to get as much protein as they want, partially due to price. It's difficult to eat as much produce, but I think a lot of vegetarians end up being just carbitarians, mm-hmm. like you talked about, where they're eating pasta for every meal or eating this, and they're they're really missing out on those high quality protein sources. Like not even eating the meat, but like even the substitutions like amaranth and freca and quinoa and stuff like that which is delicious it's way way better than rice in my opinion and i'm so excited it's more available like it used to be you didn't see that stuff in the grocery store but now if you're in harris teeter or kroger or whatever they have that stuff what's the selling point ancient grains you know (laughs) (laughs) you know it's good because it's old (laughs) the wisdom of the egyptians right they lived like super long lives, right? Yeah, yeah. No, no like maladies well, well into their thirties. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, back to the research stuff. So, you were saying that some of the things you learned, like what what are the new things that have come out? You know, what are the things that you took from this conference that will be like shaping the Softleet Nutrition Program going forward? I think my favorite thing that um. I learned about that definitely will shape things going forward is was a study done. They did a series of studies about nighttime protein supplementation. Mm-hmm. And the way they did the study, they actually had patients um, sleep in the hospital and they had like an NG tube that went from their nose to their stomach. And two hours after they went to the bed, they were feeding them through these tubes protein. Um, Sounds really horrible. Well, I get, I, they slept through it. I think they were fine. And they, under these, con- they just wanted to have them under these like really specific conditions, I guess, for research to sure. show this stuff. So basically what the study showed is that nighttime protein supplementation increases your muscle protein synthesis or muscle growth, basically. Mm-hmm. So you're in an anabolic state while you sleep. Sounds like the perfect thing. I thought it was really funny. This researcher was like, you would be really surprised how many like professional coaches called to be like, so how can I set up these NG tubes for my team? And he's (laughs) like, no, no, no. Like that's not how it works. Um, so what the actual implications for like how to apply this would be to have a protein shake right before you go to bed. And, um, they're actually continuing to do more research. So hopefully, um, I, I know it's a process, so maybe it won't be till next year, but now they're testing which types of protein would be the, the best at this. Uh, my instinct, and I was talking to Bill about this, would be casein because it's a slower absorbing protein. So if you drink it right before you go to bed, go to sleep, it's going to be slowly absorbed for hours while you're sleeping, basically. So then your body is in this anabolic state and you're resting and recovering. So I think that that was really exciting and, um, 
I think that that's definitely something to incorporate, especially um, if you're losing weight and you're restricting your calories, something like that could be really important to preserve muscle mass so that you don't lose gains, you know, while you're trying to lose fat. I think that's a huge point that a lot of people overlook to in training is the, the rest nutrition component. You know, so many people, especially um, high performance people, judge how hard they're working by like how hard they're dragging their skull across the concrete and like how horrible every workout is. And when they think about nutrition, they think, well, I'm eating these things and I'm, uh, took my pre-workout and I slammed my protein shake and I got it done, but then they don't even factor in the rest function at all. And certainly not rest nutrition. You know, the idea of thinking like, well, I should take a protein shake before I go to bed and like that'll help me and I need to sleep mm -hmm. more and all this sort of stuff because most people think the opposite it's like well every second I'm not in the gym I'm losing precious gains <laughs> with a Z yeah or, do, or three <laughs> I, I do think we have passed through the the valley or over the hump however you want to look at it of the like the harder the workout the better mentality just in general um, however yeah I do think that there's still the common perception of like the harder you work, the, the more sore you are. Like you, you basically can never like work out enough, right? You know, yeah. if, if one of days are good, then two days are better. You know, if two days are good, then like three days would be amazing. Yep. Um, but and and not looking at you know, well, if I'm going to do more, if I have more time to do work physically, like what am I going to use that for? Um, you know, should it be obviously something maybe more in like the recovery focus. Um, and Brian, I think actually, you know, this weekend you and I were chatting and you were talking about when you were on Sopsy hold, yeah. like, you know, basically how you spent that six weeks. And I, I, mean, I don't know if you want to tell that story, but I mean, the whole thing was basically about recovery. Yeah. 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 We like, we had nothing to do. We were in hold. And so they worked us out three times a day, but and we, just for everyone listening that maybe doesn't know, can you? Oh, yeah, yeah. So before um, I was an 18 X-ray uh, Special Forces recruit, this is in 2004, and they had this course, and I believe they still do, called the Special Operations Preparatory Course or SOPSI. And it was essentially a good way for them to, like, pre-weed out people before they went to Special Forces selection. But the idea was that, you know, kids off the street aren't going to have these like land navigation skills and aren't going to be quite as physically fit enough to be successful at special forces assessment and selection or SFAS. So they put you through this course. And when, when we showed up, we, the course hadn't quite started yet. And they're like, well, you know, what do we do with these kids? And like, well, yeah, we're going to basically turn them into uh, better athletes before the course starts. So they mostly for injury prevention, that was their primary concern. A lot of guys, you know, when you put a bunch of weight on their shoulders and move them around in the woods at night, you know, there's, you're just going to step in holes and you're going to get crash over fallen logs and you're going to bump into things and you're going to put a lot of stress on your joints and your knees and your ankles. So the stronger you are in the higher level, your general fitness is the better you're going to perform. But going to what Aaron said, while we were in that hold, we'd wake up at six in the morning and we would go work out for an hour. Then we would go eat breakfast. And the chow hall had only certain very healthy options available, but you were allowed to get unlimited amounts of it. So, and that was the first time I'd ever seen that in the military chow hall coming just like from basic training and airborne school. But so you'd have like bacon and oatmeal and yogurt 
or whatever and just good stuff to, to eat. And then they would say, go back to bed. We want you to like lay in your rest, racks and sleep. And then at 11, you'd wake up again, you'd work out, then you'd go eat lunch, then you'd go back to bed. And then at 1600 you, or 1700, you'd wake up, go work out, eat dinner, and then you release for the day. But all you did was work out, eat, and sleep three times a day for like weeks. And it turned us into a bunch of like animals. Like I mean, just, would you say that's the best shape you've ever been in? Oh, yeah, yeah. Without, I mean, and it was so effortless, the like how good a shape we were in. It wasn't effortless getting in that level of shape, but uh, I was telling him a story about we were on a formation run and we were all just cruising uh, up the up and down these tank trails and um we thought it was kind of an easy relaxed run none of us knew how fast we were going and afterwards the guy told us that we'd been holding a 615 pace for like 45 straight minutes wow we're like oh okay yeah we're in pretty good shape now <laughs> that's um, awesome yeah, yeah. No, but the, but oh what you know, but so the recovery portion was definitely the most important part yeah, of that, though. Taking those three naps a day, basically, right? Yeah, you just let your body. I mean, work plus rest equals results, and a lot of people forget the rest part, and they get really busy with their lives. And I'll tell you, I had the exact opposite experience last year. I deployed to Africa, and I was trying to make time to work out. So my wife works twelve-hour shifts at the hospital. She leaves the house at 6.15 in the morning, gets home at about 8. And I had the kids. I was a stay-at-home parent at the time. So I needed to work out either after that or before. And I chose before because, like, after she got home, I wanted to, like, eat dinner with her and have some time with my wife before she needed to go to bed at 10 or 10.30 to wake up the next morning for her early shift. So I started getting up at 4.15 or 4 you know, 30 in the morning. Jocko style. Yeah. And I would go run with my buddies and, or go to the gym in my neighborhood. And then I'd come back and take a shower and kind of prepare my routine. And then my wife would wake up and spend a few moments with her and then the kids would be up. But I wasn't going to sleep when I should have been like for that sort of, I needed to be going to bed at eight or right. eight, you know, but what I wasn't, I was staying up with my wife to like 11. So I was only getting four and a half, five hours of sleep a night and I just wasn't seeing any gains from any of that because I just d wasn't giving myself time to recover. I'd work out. I would burn it down all day long with my kids. Then, like, spend time with my wife. I think after a while you'd just be exhausted as well. Well, no, I started having, like, all these stress-related, like, problems as well. Like, I started getting these headaches, and it was really weird. And I went to the doctor, and she's like, yeah, this is just all stress related like you're just running it too hard and i'm like well no that's stupid i was like i could run it hard she's like yeah but you're not like, like this is not you know it's one thing to like turn it on like a combat environment it's another thing to like just live your life that way every day yeah and like you know of course nutrition like i wasn't eating properly or anything i didn't i didn't know any better, but you're like magpieing on your kids' meals all day instead of like sitting down and having your own proper meal, and it was just it just broke me off. And yeah. it's, it was embarrassing to talk about. It. She was like, "Yo, what, what broke you off? Yeah, I just did this fifty mile error. I did the Western States, and like, well, my kids and my freaking like little four mile run in the morning break me <laughs> out. <laughs> so, well, but a lot of that was all recovery, you know. Mm -hmm. like, yeah, man, <clears throat> need that protein shake. It's also interconnected too the hormones of sleep and then the food actually ties into um, one of the interesting things that we kind of touched on was um, high protein diets and low carb diets 
um, actually really mess with your hormones. And when you deplete carbohydrates, you deplete your serotonin, which also helps regulate sleep. But then it helps with the cycle to make you alert and calm. So I thought that was really interesting that so even in working out or diet, you can take it too far where it's going to mess up your body's natural processes and hormones and things. So it's really important for like a balanced, healthy diet, workout plan and sleep. Like it all is interconnected. How much like for the average athlete, like what do you think? Do you, how much performance do you think they're leaving on the table by neglecting their their nutrition like i mean i know you can't like give a percentage but is it a large amount do you, do you run across a lot of athletes that you're like man if you were if you were really up to your nutrition game you'd have a lot better results yeah. i would like i feel like off my head i don't even know where this is coming from but like 20 25 percent and i was i was one of those athletes which is the funny like weird part which is why i kind of chose to do what i did but i didn't take my coaches seriously all the time and I didn't want to be at the 5 a.m. lift and at practice after school and blah, blah blah and I feel like I left so much out there because after practice I would go eat like an entire box of mac and cheese and like a box of Popeye's fried chicken because I was starving but what if I had chosen to like be mindful and eat healthy throughout the day instead of just like my really unhealthy habits like I always think about that a lot and that's why I think the sports dietitian realm is becoming more popular in on college campuses. Most college campuses now, sports teams at least have one dietitian. Where I worked in Virginia Tech, there was like five. And I think there's even more now. And professional teams, not all professional teams have them either, which is interesting. But a lot of them will contract someone to come in and like work with their team. So I feel like it's starting to be recognized as, hey, there's a lot of untapped potential um, you know who talks about this a lot? I feel like people love him or hate him is Tom Brady. He talks about it all the time. That like that's why his nutrition and like what he does and his routine is like part of the reason he can still perform even though he's like much older than a lot of the other guys on the field. Hmm. <clears throat> I know Rob's a big fan, so loves him. He'll love hearing <laughs> that. <clears throat> but uh well <clears throat> so what do you think after the conference, you know, like what are the what are the the changes? What's the new direction, or maybe not new direction, but what are the you know things that you'll be incorporating that you learned at the conference into the nutrition program going forward? I think a lot of it too, especially because I'm designing like healthy meals, is types of different foods and like types of foods that I wouldn't thought about and ways to incorporate them. Because on this big expo floor, there's like hundreds and hundreds of um, companies or either like like the almond board is there and the Haas avocado board and stuff like that. So they actually present the research based on different foods too. So that's really cool. Um, I got to play in a giant cranberry bog and learn about cranberries and all their amazing health benefits. So I think that to me was something that was cool. It's like, Hey, like here's these other ways I can incorporate lentils and pulses and all these other foods that maybe I didn't think of just cause I don't normally eat them. So that was really fun. Yeah, keeping the creative knife sharp, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's hard. I mean, how do you balance that when you're writing the program as far as, you know, creating that variety, writing recipes with that variety, but also not making it so that, you know, when I go to the grocery store on the weekend, it's like, holy cow, I've got all this stuff that I have to buy. I try to, like, put them into, like, themes in my mind. So there was, like, a 
fall comfort food kind of maple sweet potato week or so I try to keep it in themes of flavors that pair well and mix and match them if that makes sense because it's a lot of food prep if you were just to go wild and you can't buy it ends up wasting food and money which we don't want people to do if we go way too overboard so it's kind of by week there's like a theme of flavor and different things that go well together great well Anything else that you want to share with us as far as things that may be coming down the pipeline or anything else from the conference that you think people would be interested in hearing about? I'm trying to think. Um, One of the other really big talks that we went to that I found interesting was on supplementation of vitamins and minerals mostly. And I think this is a really interesting topic. And I actually had an entire class in undergrad where this is all we did. Is vitamins and minerals literally the entire class and um at the beginning of class they asked like how we felt about supplementation of a multivitamin and vitamins and minerals and then they ask at the end and i swear at the end everyone was even more confused than we were at the beginning because there's so many different factors to it like what is the answer i mean obviously you said that i was confused but um like I've definitely been told by more than a few people that like if you've got a good balanced diet and you're eating well like eating a one a day pill is just redundant. Like it's, you're just probably urinating out all of what you're putting in your body. Is that true or is that? Yeah, that is, that is the case. And basically kind of what we came to when you come and you look at all this research is it's not going to hurt you, but you're wasting your money and you're like peeing out vitamins essentially because your body doesn't want to absorb this man-made version. It wants vitamins and minerals through food. So if you eat fruits and vegetables in a balanced diet, it doesn't have to all be in the same day. Like I feel like we have this idea of like, oh, it's 24, you know, 100 calories a day and it's all in this day. It doesn't actually work like that. It's more over time. So like the recommendation for fish and omega-3s, if you eat 10 ounces of fish a week, you're getting all of your omega-3s that you need. So like the recommendations don't need to all be in one day. If you're eating balanced fruits and vegetables kind of as a habit, then you are getting everything you need. But remember, she said that the sushi, you don't actually but absorb sushi, all you need them. to eat more of that. <laughs> so 20 or 30. Right. Yeah. Okay. Just, <clears throat> just check. Yeah. We'll maybe do some research on our own. Yeah. <laughs> Independent study. study. Okay, right. there we go. <laughs> the soft lead sushi study. <laughs> <laughs> Man, the CEO is going to be so mad when he sees our expense budget on that. Right. I feel like we've already started the study. <laughs> <clears throat> maybe we got to start over to start documenting. <laughs> yep. Like throw out all the old data. Right. Well, that's pretty cool, Brooke. I'm, uh, yeah, I know, you know, we're obviously super excited to have you on board. And I think so far the feedback on the program has been like really exceptional. So we, uh, we're super excited to see where you take it going forward. I'm excited. I'm loving it so far. Awesome. And, uh, I think in the future we'll probably do another episode talking about, what people probably need to have in their kitchens to be food prepping correctly and making sure they're not wasting food, but also not getting over gadgeted. If there is such a thing in the kitchen, there is such a thing in the kitchen. Yeah. I don't know. Um, maybe when you own a mango cutter, like a mango, knife, <laughs> you've taken it too far. Yeah. You're, 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 I assume you own a mango cutter. No, I don't uh, No, That's your, that's your line. That's my line, yeah. Because I'm kind of I'm uh, not to spoil that that podcast, but like I'm sort of a Alton Brown philosophy on that. It's like if if a thing only does one thing in my kitchen, it doesn't belong in my kitchen. You know, I don't know unless you know, a cherry pitter. I have a cherry pitter, then that thing is 
fucking witchcraft. Like, I mean, I don't like to eat cherries, but you can go, you can pit a whole thing of cherries and then I can shovel it into my mouth <laughs> as we talked about earlier. I don't think it's about how many uses it has. I think it's about how often it gets used. Well, that's definitely, right? that's definitely so like shrimp divainer. That's I handy. Super handy, right? Didn't even know this thing. My wife won't eat shrimp, so that would not be handy in my, my kitchen. But yeah, yeah. If you don't like to eat shrimp poop and you eat a lot of shrimp, then <laughs> devein all day long. Right? All right. <laughs> anyway, we'll cover that on the uh, on the food, the kitchen kitchen equipment podcast. Absolutely. Which uh, will be coming to you at some point in the future. So thanks again for listening. And if you have any questions about the program or anything else at Softleet, please feel free to email us at help at softleet.com. <laughs>